Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, welcome to season four of the Lost Crimes Library podcast and happy Black History Month. We are starting off this new season with a Black History Month series. If you're new to the podcast, you may not know that in previous seasons, I've dedicated the month of February to covering cold cases from the civil rights era. Oftentimes, older cases, cases that are multiple decades old, get lost to time and history, especially cases of Black victims. And during Black History Month, I try my best to highlight the many different cold cases from the civil rights era because these cases have been left un solved due to the racial turmoil during that time period. So these victims and their legacies end up forgotten. Their cases end up neglected too. I hope during this series I can honor the victims' lives and their legacies by telling their stories and reminding us to never forget the Black people that helped shape this country, even in their deaths. The first case of the series is about an American businessman named Frank Morris, a man who died in a fire set to his shoe shop in Faraday, Louisiana. In a city fraught with a history of racial violence, over the years there have been numerous allegations surrounding Frank Morris's case. There have been allegations of witness intimidation, evidence tampering, and complicity of local law enforcement. Almost 60 years later, despite three FBI investigations, no charges have ever been brought against a suspect. This is the cold case of Frank Morris. Frank Morris was born to Charlotte and Sullivan Morris in 1913. When Frank was just a toddler, his mother, Charlotte, sadly died, so he was raised by his maternal grandparents. It's not clear what happened to his father or why his father did not raise him, but we know that his father, Sullivan, operated a shoe shop in Natchez, Mississippi. Eventually, Frank Morris would go on to father one child and have two grandchildren. He was a divorced man, and at the time of his murder, he was dating a woman who lived in Clayton, Louisiana. Frank was also an usher at the Mercy Seat Baptist Church, and was a well-known and important member of his community in his hometown of Faraday, Louisiana. By the late 1930s, Frank Morris opened his own shoe repair shop in Faraday. His store, which was called Frank's Shoes Service, serviced both black and white customers. Frank often did work repairing shoes and saddles. He also sold jewelry, hats, and clothing. Frank's shop was very successful. In fact, it was known by its tagline, open every day and half the night, which often appeared in local ads. The shoe repair shop wasn't just Frank's place of work, though. It was also his home. He owned the property that his shop was on, and I think this was a fairly common practice for many small business owners during that time. At approximately 1 a.m. on December 10, 1964, 51-year-old Frank Morris woke up in the back room of his shop to the sound of glass breaking. 
Alarmed by the noise, Frank made his way to the front of the shop. When he opened the front door of his shop to see what was happening, he was met by two white men in their 30s, one of which was holding a shotgun. The man who was holding the shotgun told Frank, quote, get back in there, N-word. Fearing for his life, Frank followed the men's orders at gunpoint. The two men then began to destroy Frank's property, his livelihood, his dream. They broke multiple shop windows and proceeded to spread gasoline all around the perimeter of his shop. They forced their ways into the shop, spreading gasoline there too. While Frank Morris was still inside his own shop, one of the men lit a match and the shop went up in a blaze. Eventually, Frank was able to escape the flames and get out of the shop, but he sustained burns on 100% of his body. He was taken to a hospital by two Faraday police officers, and he was able to speak with FBI investigators about the incident. In three interviews conducted by the FBI, Frank told them he, quote, saw a man pouring gasoline around the place. Another man had a shotgun and told him to get back in there, N-word, end quote. He did not identify the white men who attacked him and burned down his store. Two days after giving his statements to authorities, Frank Morris entered into a coma. He died soon after, on December 14, 1964. The town of Faraday is located in Concordia Parish, Louisiana, and is on the central eastern border of the state. It's across the Mississippi River and Adams County, Mississippi. During the 1960s, this area was a strictly segregated society, and Concordia Parish had 14 recorded racially motivated murders between 1964 and 1967. If you look at the map on the screen, you can see how the town of Faraday borders the state of Mississippi, a state that was infamous for racially fueled lynchings during the Jim Crow era. You can also see in this image that Faraday is geographically close to Adams County, Mississippi. During this time period, the population of Adams County was roughly split in half between blacks and whites, and much like the other Mississippi counties, law enforcement and the courts were run by white people. As we know, KKK activity was exceptionally high during the civil rights era, but the Silver Dollar Group, also known as SDG, was a violent and exceptionally militant Klan offshoot that operated in Adams County between 1964 and 1967. To add, the SDG regularly committed arson, bombings, and murder, and the FBI considered the SDG to be a highly dangerous domestic terror cell. They even conducted multiple investigations into its activities, which revealed that multiple disappearances and murders in the Natchez, Mississippi area were connected both to the KKK and the SDG. Now that we have some background on the area and racial climate in which Frank Morris lived, let's move on into the investigation. Well, let's start with the first investigation, because there were actually three. The first FBI investigation into the murder of Frank Morris began in January 1965. The investigation began at the request of then-Assistant Attorney General of the Civil Rights Division, Burke Marshall. As we know, Frank was interviewed three times before he died, but he was heavily medicated to manage the pain of his injuries. So investigators felt that they needed more than Frank's statements to further the progress of the investigation and determine the identity of the suspects. In the initial investigation, the FBI collected evidence at the crime scene and conducted interviews with local law enforcement, local Klan leaders, and witnesses. In the second and third interviews, Frank told the FBI 
more about the attack. He said that the men who targeted him and his store were from Natchez, Mississippi. He said the men were between the ages of 30 and 35 and that they both had small builds. Frank also said that he had seen a car outside of the shop, but he could not say what kind, and he thought that there was possibly a third man who was driving the car. He also described one of the men as young with gray hair and wearing khaki pants, and the other as quote-unquote real white. Frank gave the FBI no further description of what he meant by real white, though. He did say, however, that he thought he had seen the men in the Faraday area before, and that he thought that they worked in Natchez, Mississippi. After speaking with Frank, the FBI investigators believed that he knew his attackers, but was unwilling to divulge their identities. In this first investigation, the FBI interviewed anyone who may have had contact with Frank on the evening of December 9, 1964. They also interviewed an employee at the shop and Frank's girlfriend, who were both on the property at the time of the arson, but were able to flee to safety. The FBI interviewed many more people from Faraday, two Faraday police officers who transported Frank Morris to the hospital, and a third man who was in their police car, two women who may have had contact with the officers immediately prior to the arson, two young boys who worked in Frank's shop, and a young man who also worked in Frank's shop an employee that was at the gas station next to Frank's shop, who was on duty at the time of the arson, and a friend of Frank's who had visited with him at the shop that evening. Next, the FBI attempted to determine a motive for the arson. Almost every witness interviewed reported that Frank got along well with both blacks and whites. In fact, Witnesses reported that a majority of his customers were white, and many witnesses also told the FBI that they couldn't think of any reason anyone would want to harm Frank Morris. Initially, there was a report that Frank Morris was involved in civil rights activity, but that information turned out to be incorrect. Frank had been an officer in the local NAACP approximately five years before the arson, but he had not been involved in any civil rights activities recently. So the idea that the motive could have been tied to civil rights issues like voting registration or other popular civil rights causes at the time was kind of put aside. The FBI also investigated whether Frank Morris had any contact or relationship with white women that could have angered white men. Witnesses told the FBI that Frank had a gospel radio station on Sundays, and sometimes he would dedicate songs to couples and individuals, some of whom were white women. Faraday residents also informed the FBI that when white female customers came to his shop, Frank would conduct his business with them in their cars, rather than have the women come into his shop. However, some employees who worked for him at the shop said they were not aware of Frank having any inappropriate contact or relationship with white women. The FBI also received some information that Frank Morris allowed men and women to use his room in his shop for interracial sexual liaisons. A local law enforcement officer told the FBI that a black school teacher told him that he had heard quote-unquote street talk that Frank used to set up dates for whites and for blacks at his shop. The school teacher confirmed to the FBI that he had heard a rumor that Frank Morris had been quote-unquote intervening between men and women. However, no further explanation was given as to the meaning of intervening. There was also no clarity on if the women and men were interracial couples. It turns out there was even more talk of the shop being known as a place for sexual encounters. Another local law enforcement officer who told the FBI that he was a former member of the Klan said that he had once propositioned a waitress in a cafe and she suggested that they could use the back room of Frank Morris's shop as a place to have sex. 
The officer said that he did not go with the waitress to Frank Morris's shop because, quote, he did not want to go to a Negro place with her, end quote. During the first investigation, there were many rumors swirling about who the possible suspects in the arson could be. Several witnesses speculated to the FBI that the police officers who drove Frank Morris to the hospital that night were complicit in the arson. However, the FBI claims that they were not able to develop credible evidence that the officers were complicit in the arson. But a week after the initial interview with the officers, new information was revealed by an unidentified source. This informant told the FBI that approximately at 1 a.m. on the night of the arson, he was driving down the road toward Faraday when a car that appeared to be a police car went past him at a high rate of speed, going away from Faraday. He claimed that several minutes later, that same car passed him going back toward Faraday, and the informant alleged that once the car was in front of him, he observed the two police officers who took Frank to the hospital in the front seat of the police car, and an unidentified white man in the back seat. In interviews with the FBI, the officers claimed that they were out that night minding their business and driving around, and as they approached the intersection near Frank Morris's shop, they saw the fire and called for help from the fire department. Despite all the interviews the FBI conducted and all the information they learned about the moments leading up to Frank's murder. In May 1965, the investigation was closed due to conflicting accounts, no leads on suspects, and a lack of motive. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The second investigation picked up in 1967. 
The reopening of the case started with the murder of Warlest Jackson. On February 27, 1967, Warlist Jackson, an employee at Armstrong Tire and Rubber Company in Natchez, Mississippi, was killed when a bomb exploded under the hood of his car while he was driving home. Before his murder, Warlist Jackson had recently been promoted to a position never before held by a black person. Warlist Jackson was also treasurer at the local chapter of the NAACP. And because Jackson held a vital position in a civil rights organization, the FBI opened a full investigation into his murder. The FBI thought it was possible that Jackson was the target of a racist organization, targeting a black man for his civil rights involvement. In fact, they believed he could have been targeted by the SDG. However, much like the Frank Morris case, witness accounts were not corroborating and investigators did not find enough evidence linking any suspects to the crime. However, the FBI still attempted to gain intel about Klan groups that were surrounding the Natchez, Mississippi area. So the FBI launched an operation called War Bomb. They placed multiple informants within Klan groups surrounding Natchez. There was one informant known as Orvin C. Poissot, who was a known Klan member from Texas. He had a relationship with a local sheriff's deputy named Frank DeLauder, and Poissot implicated Frank DeLauder as a conspirator in the murder of Frank Morris. At this point, it had been a few years since Frank Morris's murder, and the FBI had a big lead in an investigation that was deemed closed. However, Orvin Poissot was eliminated as a potential witness. He was deemed an unreliable witness and informant due to his erratic amphetamine use and difficulties differentiating between personal knowledge and hearsay. But Poissot wasn't the only informant who gave the FBI information in August of 1967. On August 3rd, 1967, a confidential informant who was a high-ranking officer of the Klan told the FBI that he had some information about the Frank Morris case. The informant claimed that a few days prior to the Frank Morris arson, a man named E.D. Morris approached the informant regarding a black man referred to as Old Frank. According to the informant, E.D. Morris told him that Frank Morris, quote, had been flirtatious with white women, end quote, and that E.D. Morris requested that Klan members from Mississippi, quote, gave him a beating, end quote. The informant also told the FBI that later that week, after requesting Frank Morris get beat up, E.D. Morris called the informant saying, quote, the rabbit hunt is off, forget about it, end quote. The following day, Frank Morris was attacked and his shop was burned down. A few days after the arson, the informant was approached by E.D. Morris. As the two spoke, E.D. Morris stated that if, quote, he, Jones, Torgerson, and Scarborough were arrested, the source should get them out of jail, end quote. The informant, fearing for his life at the time, did not share this information with the FBI until two years after the Frank Morris arson. Along with this informant's information, two more war bomb informants reported information regarding the murder of Frank Morris. And so the FBI reopened the Morris investigation in August 1967. By the fall of 1967, E.D. Morris, Tommy Lee Jones, not this Tommy Lee Jones, Thor Lee Torgerson, and James Lee Scarborough were the primary suspects in the murder of Frank Morris. All four men were questioned, and they denied any involvement in the arson and murder. However, when Jones was interviewed on September 22nd, he stated that, quote, if he was arrested for this crime, officers also would have to arrest DeLauder, end quote. 
Jones mentioning local sheriff's deputy Frank DeLauder was significant as the FBI knew that multiple confidential informants came forward claiming that the Concordia Parish Sheriff's Department had prior knowledge of the coming attack on Frank Morris. The FBI also received information from informants that they were told to, quote, be on the other side of the parish, end quote. One of the other suspects, James Lee Scarborough, was under investigation in connection with Frank Morris's and Warless Jackson's murders. However, Scarborough denied any involvement in the murders, stating, quote, every time something happens to a Negro, it is immediately blamed on white people, end quote. Despite Scarborough insisting that he was not involved in the Frank Morris murder, two confidential sources stated otherwise. These same confidential sources stated that E.D. Morris, at some point during the planning stages, described a battery-powered device which could, quote, spray five gallons of gasoline in five minutes, end quote. According to these informants, E.D. Morris was the primary conspirator in the murder of Frank Morris. However, the FBI could not find any physical evidence corroborating what the witnesses said. In February 1968, the second investigation into Frank Morris's murder was closed when the FBI determined that there was insufficient evidence to charge any of the suspects. And in August 1968, the investigation into Warless Jackson's murder was closed as well. For years, the investigation into Frank Morris's arson case and murder case was not looked into. The case was not reinvestigated until 2007. The FBI reopened the Frank Morris investigation in 2007 as part of the Civil Rights Era Cold Case Initiative. In 2006, the FBI began its effort to identify and investigate decades-old racially motivated murders, which prompted the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act, or the Emmett Till Act, to become law two years later in 2008. During the third investigation, the FBI re-interviewed the living witnesses who had first-hand information about the arson. They also conducted interviews with family members of Frank Morris, business owners and neighbors in the vicinity of the shoe shop, law enforcement officers, community members, and former KKK members. In 2008, still struggling with the investigation, the FBI went through the local media to ask for help with the case. They informed the public that the FBI was offering a $10,000 reward for information leading to an arrest in the Frank Morris case. After getting some national attention on the case, three new suspects were identified. But again, investigators did not uncover any credible physical evidence supporting the allegations from informants. However, the investigation did unearth new allegations that local police officers were tampering with the investigation by threatening witnesses. Faraday policemen, including Frank DeLauder, Bill Ogden, and Faraday Police Chief Bob Warren had allegedly ordered an unidentified witness to, quote, keep his mouth shut, end quote. To add, allegedly the policeman later told the witness to, quote, get out of town, end quote. According to the witness, they also received death threats and his home was allegedly shot at on multiple occasions. Just like the previous investigations, no new information led police to any arrests or other determinations in the case. The FBI concluded the investigation in 2016, after investigators determined that there was insufficient evidence to charge any individual with any federal crimes. And at this point, it didn't help that important witnesses, suspects, and informants were dead. But this dead end did not stop other people from investigating Frank Morris's murder. After publishing a series of articles in the Concordia Sentinel, Stanley Nelson, an award-winning journalist and Pulitzer Prize finalist, published the book Devil's Walking, Clan Murders Along the Mississippi in the 1960s. 
During his research process for this book, Nelson conducted interviews to uncover unknown facts and recollections about the racially motivated murders around Faraday, and Frank Morris's case is featured in Nelson's book. Nelson investigated the many rumors that swirled around town, that police officers possibly committed the arson. According to Delamay Smith, quote, Deputy Frank DeLauder had organized the arson, end quote, and local police had set Frank Morris's home on fire. It also alleges that DeLauder lied about his location during the time of the arson, claiming that he was out of the jurisdiction on a non-emergency call. There were also rumors that one of the suspects in the fire had also fired a shotgun in the home of Junius T. Wee Kelly after Kelly had witnessed the arson. It was alleged that later that week of the fire, officers Frank DeLauder and Bill Ogden intimidated Kelly and forced him out of town. According to Nelson's research, Kelly later told Rosa Williams, Frank Morris's granddaughter, quote, I know what happened to your grandfather. You don't have to look no further than the police department, end quote. Nelson's research into Frank Morris's case also revealed how people in the community felt about him. Faraday locals thought highly of Frank Morris. They considered him a community-centered man who gave many young black men their first paying job. At the time of his death, Frank Morris owned the land that his shop was on, and he was seen as an honest, responsible man who paid his bills on time. Although residents of Faraday generally thought highly of Frank Morris, many black residents believed that Frank Morris was too shocking to white residents. As we know, there were rumors that Frank interacted with white women, which was basically a death sentence for any black man during the Jim Crow era. As I mentioned earlier, a local black teacher claimed that after the arson, a rumor was spreading that Frank was facilitating interracial liaisons. But Nelson's research revealed that there were even more rumors, rumors that Frank was involved in interracial relationships with white women himself. One rumor was that Frank was romantically involved with the wife of a white man, and that soon after the arson, the white couple moved away. There were other rumors and allegations about Frank Morris that didn't involve his romantic life, though. For example, Faraday police officer William Howell Harp Jr. alleged that Frank Morris was a bootlegger and sold narcotics. Harp claimed he and his fellow officers found a quote-unquote slightly scorched suitcase filled with 14 and a half pints of bourbon in the aftermath of the arson. However, it would turn out that the newspapers that the bourbon had been wrapped in had no signs of burning. This indicated that the Frank Morris crime scene had been tampered with. Given that the store was set ablaze, the pints of bourbon wrapped in the newspapers would have definitely been incinerated. Common sense is that paper and alcohol fuels fire, so Harp's story didn't really make sense. But despite the inconsistency with Harp's claims and the crime scene, Harp continued to describe Frank Morris as an alcoholic and a drug dealer. And he claimed he had two confrontations with Frank between 1963 and 1965, as well as a small argument outside of the town's courthouse. After Stanley Nelson's research, in February 2011, a grand jury convened. It met to hear testimony from witnesses in the Frank Morris case. This progress in the investigation came after Stanley Nelson wrote on the front page of the Concordia Sentinel newspaper the name of the suspect in the Morris case, Leonard Spencer, a former Klan member who was 72 at the time and a resident of a nearby parish. Reportedly, Nelson named 
Spencer as a suspect after sources from Spencer's own family came forward saying Spencer and Orvin Poissot, that Klan member turned informant in the 1967 investigation, confessed to the arson. In 2011, Poissot was dead, so he couldn't comment on this accusation, but Leonard Spencer was still alive, and he insisted that he had nothing to do with the arson. Despite Nelson coming forward and naming a suspect, and even getting a grand jury to convene, nothing came of it. No one was arrested for Frank's murder. I think that's because, like so many other times before, there wasn't enough physical evidence to tie Leonard Spencer to the murder, so authorities had no grounds to indict. Since 1964, the year Frank Morris was murdered, there have been numerous rumors and countless speculation about who could have been involved. Was it the local police? Or perhaps it was the Klan and SDG? Or maybe it was the angry husband of a white woman Frank was allegedly having an affair with? Unfortunately, the latest investigation into Frank's case has never really answered any of these questions or put the rumors to bed. Almost 60 years later, we still don't know the truth. Sadly, anyone who could have potentially cracked the case is long gone. So the prevailing question is, will we ever know who murdered Frank Morris? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. We've come to the end of today's episode. Who do you think is responsible for Frank Morris's murder? Which rumor do you think holds the most truth to it? Feel free to leave your thoughts down below in the comment section. Please remember to be kind, respectful, and sensitive to the circumstances of this case. Any inappropriate or disrespectful comments will be removed. If you're not following the podcast on social media, consider following at the Lost Crimes Library pod on TikTok and Instagram. If you're not subscribed yet, what are you waiting for? I post new episodes every Wednesday, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss out. Before you go, please hit the like button for me. It really helps out. So that's it for me today. I'll see you in the next episode.